Welcome back to Tipin Podcast, where we are exploring the intersections of landscape with culture and identity, art and design, health and well-being, and many more other related issues and topics. So this episode takes me to Sheffield in Yorkshire, one of the destinations with tantalizingly close access to Peak District National Park. Yet, not everyone is able to get outside to do so. So, why is that exactly? Well, this episode answers this question. My guest is Maxwell Ayamba, an environmental journalist and researcher, and one of the founders of Sheffield Environmental Movement. To say Maxwell is a fiery ball of energy would be an understatement. This man walks everywhere throughout his current home in the hilly city of Sheffield and he absolutely adores nature. In fact, being an ecocentric person, he believes that he is a part of nature, fully integrated in the whole ecosystem. And ecocentrist is the word of the episode, so keep on listening to find out what that fully means. In his professional field, Maxwell is a bridge that connects black and ethnic minority groups to nature. He is also a spokesman that connects BME groups with environmental organisations. In the UK and abroad, he is breaking barriers and myths that keep minority communities from accessing the natural landscapes. Once again, we're diving deep and our conversation takes a lot of this issue from many different angles. So, have a listen and enjoy. Um, my name is Maxwell Ayamba. Um, I'm originally from Ghana in West Africa. And I've been living in England since 96. Um, uh, I'm an environmental journalist, a profession, but also an ecocentrist, uh, and also a researcher. And the moment I'm doing my um, PhD at the University of Nottingham, um, looking at the lived experience of people of Black African ancestry in the diaspora, access and use of the Pictish National Park. Mm-hmm. So besides the research, um, I also set up a charity called Sheffield Environmental Movement uh, three years ago in 2016, which aims to promote access to and participation in the natural environment for people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic and refugee background living in the living in Sheffield. Great. And that's where I basically come across Maxwell was um, an article that was written in the Landscape Institute. And at that time, I think you had just started um, or, or you were transitioning the group from uh, what was used to be called 100 Black Men Walk to environmental uh, Sheffield Environmental Group. Um, and that really captured my intention. And I thought that was such a strong name of um, for the group. And obviously, the work that you do is so based around culture and identity and its relationship to landscape 
that um well first of all what made you think of the name and where did it come from well i mean you're right um i'm interested in what you call it um the intersection of landscape between race identity culture and belonging you know in relation to people of black african ancestry their lived experience mm. in the uk mm -hmm. and so um all along my time here in the uk whilst i was studying and also working i sort of like felt there was a need to have um you know an ethos towards a kind of um of a kind of uh, what do you call it um i don't call it a movement but maybe just try to facilitate you know people's access to the natural environment and have you have you always been this way, Maxwell? For example, when did your love for the you know the nature? Um, when did that start? Was that from a young age when you were back in Ghana, or was that only when you first started realizing coming from Ghana to England? Well, I mean, um, I grew up in a rural environment back home in Ghana, in the northern part of Ghana where we live so close to nature and literally well, everything we did you know we had nature in mind so we call it biocentrism being close to nature mm. um, and so that's how my uh, initial contact or uh, experience of nature started as a young you know as a young boy growing up in a rural environment where we did everything close to nature and then um, and grew up and then eventually um, you know studied and then came to do journalism in Cardiff and then eventually did my postgraduate environmental management and conservation at Shabalam University. Um, yeah, I think it's really difficult for people who have migrated um, to Western societies who originally have that kind of rural, you know, connections or contact to, to reconnect that to the natural environment mm. in the UK, and that was one of my, um, you know, um, uh, experiences, um, what I call cultural severance, because I was more or less like detached from my cultural roots, which was, you know, to do with nature, and found myself in an environment where, due to urbanization and the fact that, you know, people from black and minority communities, um, you know, historically due to migration and socioeconomic reasons, have been disconnected or detached from the natural world. And so that was one of the things I discovered when I came here. And so that motivated me really to see what can I do in my capacity based on both my experience back home, you know, in Ghana, and also my, um, my master's degree in the environment where I had the opportunity to to go as part of my field studies, mm. you know, to discover the British countryside. I see. And to understand right. what is there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so after my master's, um, basically, um, you know, I was involved in a certain number of charity uh, called Sheffield uh, Black and Ethnic Minority Environmental Network mm -hmm. in 2003, mm -hmm. um, promoting access to the countryside for people from BME communities background. So it was whilst I was working with that charity that two friends of mine who are both Caribbean but born here mm. approached me with the idea of setting up the 100 Black Men Work for Health group. I see. Which is modeled around a, a Mile Million March in the US, which is a civil kind of rights kind of movement. Right, um, right. 
but we the aim of the hundred black men walk wasn't to send a kind of a political statement per se but it was meant to promote walking among middle-aged black men just mm. to walk and talk mm -hmm. we needed a space we need that space a safe could, space yeah that's mm. a space where we could walk and talk issues about black men because um when as you may know uh, most black people the only spaces they go to interact and talk is barber shops all right or, or, i see you know and that kind of thing that's the kind right. of spaces they are used to yes and um and, and i'll come to your next question where you were talking about the black men working play yeah uh, and so when um you know so we felt we needed a space that kind of safe space where we could just walk and talk and so uh, that's how the group came by um or came about um and the group has been running since 2004 to now 2019 so that's really that's a long time that's a long 15 time 15 years, years. Mm. and we've covered over you know 300 walks mm. or even more than that because mm. remember we work first saturday of every month mm. that's you know, right so if you want to calculate you know how many months we walked in a year times how many years 15 Fif years so mm. i think so the walks are quite many really yes so that was that so that's how it, that's how mm. they that's how it came by um and then basically after doing the walks we we scaled places like ben nevis uh and then also scarfell um but we most of our walks are taking place in the pigdish national park yes um because the group started yes from here so yes in around sheffield area that's right mm. um not that even but they we have over 200 trails walking trails in the peak national park yes where you know um where you know people can go walking and also because of the you know the history and the landscape of the peak national park uh, i mean uh, if you want to look at the place like um uh, what they call it ideal it's the most walked trail in the in the UK, mm. you know, last year according to BB the BBC poll. Right, um, I see. So there's some fantastic landscapes, and Kinder Scout is one of the places we go, which which is quite historical, um, because of the mass trespass, mm. uh, which happened in 1932 okay. to open up the countryside for access. Yes, yes. Know, uh, for people from from the cities. Yes. Uh, so. Kinder Scout is quite historical, really, and mm. that's one of the places we, we often go walking, which is Edel. And so, um, basically, the, the group actually uh, was, like I said, initially aimed at black men walking. Um, but as time went by, um, I think that was, would I say, in 2015, thereabout, that um, one, one of the guys, you know, came on the walk. Uh, all of a sudden, we're going to Edel on this walk, and uh, when we got to uh, what do you call it, uh, the train station at um, Dole, uh, <laughs> which is just not far from here, uh, he was there with his wife, uh, and we said, well, "Oh, oh Dave, what, what, what are you doing here?" With the lady, said, "Well, she wants to come along," and so that was the first time we had a lady on the walk, and, <laughs> and you were all very open to it. That's right. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, open to that. But it changed the dynamics of the whole. Of course, yes, here, of course. Say. Yeah, um. the whole dynamics of the group changed. Um, <laughs> but it was it was interesting because we didn't know what was going to happen with the lady coming on the walk with all the black men, how mm. she would fit in, mm. you know, and that kind of thing. But eventually, you know, she fitted in very well, and and she was a very good walker. Yes. Um, and I gave her the nickname uh, Mountain Goat. Okay. Yeah, because of how age she was, very good walker. And then um, since then, it opened up for more women started coming. 
the walks yes and we have young people who've joined and that's why the group then changed the name from you know the 100 black men working the group to mm. um, work for health mm. um, because the whole ethos of the group basically is for health and well-being yes um, but it was geared towards black men basically because when black men are younger they are very active yes uh, as they get to middle age they tend to live very inactive lives yes um, some perhaps to do with stress uh, work stresses family problems economic problems all kinds of things so yes. it distracts people from really being active playing football boxing or maybe you going to the gym or those yeah kind of things. definitely i think it's the same for um as i'm aware of um, in asian culture as well mm-hmm. in terms of um yeah men as well being you know generally tend to get m- less active mm-hmm. As yeah. they get, yeah, as they, as get they older. older. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's not, it's not even only on, you know, those cultures, you know, but I mean, in, in general, in general, when men get older, uh, basically, they are out of that kind of active limelight, really. Um, but it's very typical, with especially with uh, black black men, mm. um, where, you know, obviously, they have a lot of economic challenges, everyday life. Um, and then also the fact that, you know, mental health is a big issue, mm. in, you know, in, in our communities, mm-hmm. uh, especially among men. Mm. Um, How does uh, mental health issues then affect um, black men? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I mean, mental health issues affect everyone per se. Uh, but Specifically? In, but, but research, mm. you know, research indicates that there are more black men. Mm. Um, and obviously mental health comes from, cause of mental health, nobody knows, but it mm. comes from different, you mm-hmm. know, problems or can come from for, for a number of reasons really um, that cross mental health um, so we can't pinpoint that this one factor particular factor that is causing yes the health problems among black men yes but what we know is that there are more black men who are in mental health institutions mm-hmm. compared to the you know the white population mm-hmm. okay. and um, you know but prob- and then uh, probably could also like I said could be due to maybe environmental problems and then socioeconomic problems, family problems, you know, a whole lot. And you find that most people are lonely these days. Yeah. Lonely, lonely, solitary lives. That's true. And mm. uh, and most men, to say why, back to your question, why is men, like men per se, is men tend to internalize their problems. I was just going to say as well, yes, I guess in a way the characteristics of the male population tend to be that they don't, it's not a common thing to talk about yeah. their feelings openly. That's right. Whereas women are more yeah. intuitive or yeah. the emotional intelligence. Yeah. I don't want to uh, cross anyone's <laughs> toes, yeah. but yeah. it tends to be higher. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. so women, whether women tend to share or mm. talk about That's their right. emotional issues, men tend yeah. to internalize it. Mm. So if men are going through problems mentally, yes. they don't want to share. Mm. And also mental health is seen as a taboo. Mm-hmm. You know, a stigma. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, not a taboo, but a stigma in most communities. Mm. And so, for you to say you have men, not even only in most communities, all communities. Because recently there was a story about a doctor in London mm. who committed suicide, jumped and committed suicide because he didn't want to be, to disclose that he had mental health problems. Yeah. Because thinking that no, maybe he might sad. lose his job mm. or it might affect his social status or those kind of things. So, you know, he felt the only way out was to take his own life. Mm. So, so, and it's becoming common these days because it's seen as a stigma mm. and people don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But when you create a space for people to walk and talk, 
then they are able to really you know to share their emotions their stories and then also learn from others and in that way you are helping them psychologically and mentally to to distress or to um, what you call it um, to overcome begin to overcome some of the mm. mental problems mm -hmm. that they are that they have yes. as a baggage in this thing. it's like a uh, free therapy program that's right yes yeah so it's a form of like it's quite therapeutic so it's kind of form of giving them that opportunity to express themselves without being judged and that kind of thing and in that way you are helping them mentally and psychologically mm. to overcome these bad these these problems mm. so that was how the group came by and, that, and that's the ethos behind the group um just and also besides that we know that as black people we we are genetically from tropical temperate mm. Mm -hmm. from a tropical climate mm -hmm. and living in a temperate climate mm -hmm. and um, living in a temperate climate as you can see the weather where the weather is at the moment you know uh, quite gloomy there's not enough sun yes so we, we i think we start feeling these effects around this time the cross right. of change it's getting yeah. dark at around yeah. half five in the evening yeah. mm. and besides that i mean no not only the darkness per se but there's not enough sun um, and as black people, we need no vitamin D. Vitamin D and yes. so, you mm. know, our intake of vitamin D is very low because as genetically, we as black people, mm. our, we created to, to take in more vitamin D, more sun mm -hmm. compared to white people mm -hmm. because they are temperate beings, we are tropical beings. Mm -hmm. So, and if you lack vitamin D, obviously, it can trigger all kinds of illnesses. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, if you go to a GP, if you don't tell them that you want to be tested for vitamin D, they, they don't do it. Mm. You have to ask to be tested. Mm -hmm. And so, and I didn't even know I like vitamin D, mm. you know, because I, I felt I was always outdoors, work, work, taking people out and doing those things. So when my missus even asked me to go and test for vitamin D, I, I said, I don't think I'll have a problem. Yes. But when I did, I discovered that it was zero. I didn't have any vitamin D in my system. How long ago was this? Oh, that was about uh, five years ago. All right, and you know, yeah. And okay. so I'm on. You were still I, walking so, then. So, yeah, so mm. I'm on vitamin D medication. You know, mm. I take I take my supplements every day. Yeah. You know, to yes. top up my vitamin D. Yes. So it just goes to tell you, I who's an outdoors person, mm. if I suffering from lack mm. of vitamin D, mm. how much more, you know, people who don't go outdoors, and especially the groups I work with like the women the asian women yes and the muslim women yes they cover up every time yes they cover from head to toe so in an so, environment so, so like this in an environment like this so they have no exposure to sun to sun mm. to the sun at all mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. most of them have got a lot of problems mm. and vitamin d deficiency triggers all kinds of illness you know diabetes you know uh, coronary heart disease all kinds of diseases that you might not associate to to or to vitamin D, but mm. it's due to lack of vitamin D. I see. So basically, the the ethos or the reason for me setting up the charity, even though the charity, uh, they they got its name from the Black Men Working Group, mm -hmm. but it wasn't to put to be limited to only black people. Yes, it was to be more inclusive mm -hmm. for all BME people mm -hmm. from black, Asian, minority, ethnic, and refugee background. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called Sheffield Environmental Emperor. Movement. So it's a movement to promote access and participation in the countryside for B, for BME people mm -hmm. of all you know ages and backgrounds, mm. class and you know walks of life. You said previously as well you've taken groups from other cultures. Mm -hmm. 
on walks. Mm -hmm. I think there was one uh, when you mentioned that you've taken a group of Pakistani women mm -hmm. out on a walk, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested to hear um, from your perspective or from your observations of how they uh, responded to the landscape when mm -hmm. you took them out on the walk. Mm -hmm. Because obviously it's not their home yeah. countryside. Yeah. Um, how was it like and what was their experience towards nature. Well, that's an yeah. interesting question because normally in government policy, when you're talking about engaging minorities in the countryside, they tend to have this kind of homogeneous way of things. Right. That kind of generalization or blanket approach. Yes. But that is not it because remember when we talk of ethnic minorities, there's the patterns of migration, history of migration, history, mm. history of settlement. Mm -hmm experience, exposure, and those kind of things. Mm. Then also we're talking about generation as well. Because mm. some minorities people are born here, mm -hmm. some are migrated here, mm. some have just moved in. So there's a complete different, you know, experience of all these various groups. So this, it doesn't it doesn't apply to only just one group. So for example, when you talk of the Asian women, a good example, some of them were born here and might have gone to school and gone, you know, school trips and been to a countryside. So they, they know about the British countryside and that kind of thing. So it's nothing new to them. It just perhaps maybe after school, you know, they haven't been out, you know, but when they go out, they still are able to relate because through school trips and that kind of, they are used to it. But the other generation who are maybe have migrated here or have moved in here when they are older mm. and having had that access, you know, exposure about the British countryside, then that's completely a different world. Yeah. And from there, from so you find out that they have a different experience about the British landscape compared to where they came from, like Pakistan, India, or Burma, or wherever it is. What happens is that obviously nature is the same everywhere you go, but the way you know their landscape back there is is a bit different from here. Having said that, they tend to, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, they tend to relate to the environment even though it's not their own environment, but they, they're, they're okay with it. Because like, right, when yes. you take them out to the country, to, uh, to Peak District National Park in the Moreland Discovery Center, you have, because of the nature of the ecology of the landscape, you have, you know, rocks, you know, you have forests, woodlands, and those kind of things. You have, um, you have flora and fauna. Mm -hmm. Like for example, there's a plant called the Rhododendron, uh, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is a particular plant that is, grown in Pakistan, mm. which grows here too. Yes. And so they, they, they can they, they can relate to that. Yes. Um, rocks are rocks. It doesn't yeah. matter which part of the world you come yes. from. <laughs> and some of them will tell you that back home in Pakistan, the village we come, we have so many rocks. Mm. And we normally walk from one particular one village to the other. Mm. And we hop on the rocks to get there. Mm. So when you take them out, it's a kind of a sense of freedom for mm. them, mm -hmm. especially being trapped in, in Sheffield, in the urban community, for mm. God knows. Some of them have never been out since they came here. Wow, yeah. You know, mm. and it's the same with the African Caribbean, you know, women or men. Because they, some of them came here in the Wind Rush generation, you yeah. know, they've never been out to the countryside. Now taking them out and they are living the same kind of countryside life they've lived back home. So they are reconnecting back to nature mm. back that they, but that missed they missed a lot back home mm. because being here they miss nature really but back home nature is everything is part of their daily life but 
the problem is if you don't engage with them and give them that opportunity to exp to be exposed to the landscapes out there then they see the landscape to be alien to them yes and landscapes can be very they can be welcoming they can be threatening and they can be very scary yes exactly you know so it is how you how you engage people in these landscapes for them to understand how the landscapes are what is there to benefit from the landscapes how to explore these landscapes mm. when they go out there mm. how to use these landscapes for their health and well-being mm. the therapeutic beauty the benefits we are talking yeah, about that's right you know this is this unless you are able to provide people with this information and opportunities and then again physically accessing the landscape is also a challenge because you need proper outdoor gear to be able to access mm. these landscapes remember it's not like back home where the weather is just the same here you have four seasons and you can have four seasons of weather in a day yes you that's know, right uh, and and you don't want people to go out to have a negative experience of the weather once they go on the experience is negative next time they won't want to go back and in the communities we work with it is by word of mouth so when people experience something that's negative they will tell others <laughs> so basically you want to do you want to take them out for them to experience the positive benefits of the landscape and then they'll come back and tell people so basically what i do is to get outdoor gear from an organization a charity called give your gear all right you I know, see. Which, yes, which I then give freely to to people, and they can keep the gear. They can keep the gear All so right. that they'll be able to go out, you know, and explore these landscapes, mm. you know, without you know the facing the elements of the weather. Mm -hmm. So just giving people the resources to be able to go out is one. The other thing is people going out. Some most of the community people don't have transport, mm. means of transport. Mm. So uh, some of the landscapes people can't explore can't explore the land they can't get there because it's not accessible yes especially in the rural landscapes mm. so but say we are lucky in Sheffield you can catch the bus from here 272 to Fox House and that takes you to pick this national park and you can walk but there are some landscapes that you can't get there you need to have your own means of transport mm. so if you don't have your own means of transport you can't get there mm. the other thing is I've mentioned about the equipment the resources also if you if you don't know where you are going then you wouldn't want to go because you don't know what is out there mm. so issues of navigation exactly. you know orienteering is something because people need to know where they are going how to get there exactly you know yes otherwise are. people are scared yes and then also there's also the issue of racism where people are worried that they may face racism in landscape deemed to be white landscapes. yes yeah. So they don't know what is out there, mm -hmm. and and that is and that is the problem. Mm. And so the work I do basically is to help break down the barriers, one, mm. but also the myth. Yeah. Yeah, that people, the myth and barriers that keep people mm. from really accessing these landscapes. Yes. So essentially, you're a nature guide. More or less. Mm. Um, but I, I I mean that in the sense that you obviously there's there's more to it. You know, you're doing all these things, which helps people reconnect with nature, but it's almost as though you have to um, give them the ropes or the means to do so, yeah. so that they can do it for themselves. Yes. So it's more or less like uh, making people come independent. Yes. And empower it. 
to be able to do things because at the end of the day you know i cannot be doing everything forever and so i want to create a legacy where people are able to do things for themselves mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. by giving the people the opportunities and the exposure and the tools and the resources mm -hmm. what we call forms of knowledge Mm -hmm. So, forms of knowledge, basically, according to Pierre Bordeaux, mm -hmm. you know, the French sociologist, mm -hmm. is about social and cultural capital, where people are given these tools to be able to navigate the system and right. to know where to go and what to do. Right. And so, having that, 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 um, that, um, that's for those forms of knowledge has people to have the networks and the connections and the links, and then the exposure and experience of things that perhaps people who are privileged take for granted. Mm. So my role or my duty or my job is to help people overcome these barriers by making people, you know, aware of what's around their environment and how they can take advantage of what's around their environment for the benefit or the betterment of their own lives. Mm -hmm. And so we have what we call habitus, which is to do with habitat, which is to do with your ecology, where you live. Mm. And people sometimes, because people are, are not from here, are not from this part of the world, you know, they are not aware of their habitus or their habitat. Mm. And so even within communities we work with, people even just don't even know their immediate environment or what is around their immediate yes. environment. So if people lack that knowledge mm. or awareness of what is around their immediate environment, mm. then obviously it affects their awareness and knowledge of the wider environment, like mm -hmm. the landscapes beyond them, mm -hmm. beyond yes. their immediate environment, like yes. countryside spaces, mm -hmm. like national parks, mm -hmm. or areas of outstanding natural beauty. Mm -hmm. So, So basically, Things that maybe the predominantly white middle class, you know, take for granted, yes, or because because they are privileged. Like an example, for example, could, um, uh, would be the national trust sites that you know heavily sort of cater towards, um, yeah, middle yeah. class yeah. population. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. national trust. I mean, I had uh, I was telling you I had an interview with a the Director General of National mm, Trust. Yes. And I didn't even know that basically the trust, its aim was set up to preserve the land, you know, landscape mm. and then also the stately properties, buildings and those kind of things. It mm. wasn't really, its focus wasn't people, mm. they say. Mm. You know, but now it is trying to change its direction. Mm. To say, well, even if we have these landscapes mm. and these properties, we have to engage people, with people to access these spaces, mm -hmm. these mm. landscapes and these things. So. So, and because historically they haven't done that, mm. you know. So their ethos is changing. Yes, so the ethos has to change now. They, mm. So they had what we call the culture, their mm. culture, their mm. own image will have to change now to reflect the communities that mm. they want to set. Yes, you that's know? a big thing actually. It it's a, a very big, big change. And it's a big change. And also some people are interested in change, others are not interested no. in change. No, and most of the national trust sites are, or as far as the ones I've been to, you have to pay to, to get in, mm -hmm. which is also, as you were saying, another barrier to less fortunate communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. So at the moment, um, when I had a meeting in London, uh, the Director General of the Trust, she's got a good vision to transform the old culture of the trust Okay. Into something more, more, um, more modern and more, uh, how would I say, human-oriented kind of thing. 
where people have to be uh, people have to be put first yes to understand these landscapes and what is in these landscapes and to access these landscapes mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. their health and well-being mm -hmm. and for recreational and leisure purposes interesting and she she also admits the fact that it's not only minority groups who are excluded but people from the Prawai communities haven't actually had that access and opportunity mm, so this no. is the whole ethos it's a whole drive now to see how that can change but it's going to take a long time because that is changing from the old order to a new order is is, is, is a challenge it's isn't fine. it yes so much of the work i am doing is to see how i can act as a broker mm. between the bme communities on one side mm -hmm. on one hand mm. and then the environmental organizations on the other hand mm -hmm. to create that link or that connection mm -hmm. to promote access or facilitate access yes because most bme committees are not aware of organizations like you know the national trust and what they do they're not aware of the open spaces society and what they do mm. they're not aware of the campaign for national parks what they are there and what they do mm. they're not aware of the campaign for the protection of rural england what they are there and what they do mm. they're not aware of the rambless society what they are there and what they do mm. they're not aware of um, you know uh, other environmental um, organizations mm. they have no, no no knowledge about them and what they do what they do and also i guess eventually how they can be a part of uh, it have become a voice yes or have to be involved or mm. have to, to to be part of become a voice like you say or in the decision making mm. and yet all these environmental organizations that i've mentioned you know are there to save everyone in the in, in england and people pay taxes for the maintenance of national parks and areas of similar beauty so they have to benefit from these these landscapes or these these places mm. but people don't even know that their taxes are being used for the for the for, for, for caring for these spaces mm -hmm. for them to go for leisure and recreation mm -hmm. you know for health and well-being reasons mm -hmm. so these communities people these communities haven't got that those forms of knowledge that i'm talking about mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. so my work is to see how i can build those those bridges yes that can facilitate access to these landscapes and spaces um for people from all walks of background it doesn't matter their racial background but to create awareness about what is out there and how people can access these spaces mm. so this is this is this is the challenge it's a big challenge mm -hmm. <laughs> but i think you're doing a great job of mm -hmm. being the translator between the both both communities but i can see already uh, and obviously a lot of what you do uh, research is behind it as well which makes it even more concrete in you know what you're talking about um and so how does that work because you're you were saying earlier that you were doing your phd so your first year into your phd and um so how do you think that will also inform the work that you're doing now obviously research is important to inform practice isn't it mm -hmm. because you Practical. could do all the research but if you don't practice it it's, it's, it's irrelevant mm -hmm. but it's also important to do research to understand what the issues are there and to find out how you will go about addressing the issues that's why research is important mm -hmm. because people have done research in the past and you have to review that research and see how it's applicable mm -hmm. in contemporary times so much of the work i do is to look at policy government policy like for example we now have what we call the government's 25 year environment plan mm -hmm. you know it was published in 2018 which, uh, which has got one of its key strands reconnecting people to natural environment mm. you know we've have we've had other 
uh, government papers, policy papers, you know, written, you know, um, white papers that have been written about the need to reconnect people to the natural environment because of the importance of the environment in people's health and well-being, especially mental health and, you know, physical health. And, and so much of the research I'm doing is looking at, you know, how research can inform practice in terms of the lived experience of people who are, you know, have migrated from here or maybe even born here, but okay. are not white English people. And, and uh, from my research, there's a lot going on in terms of um, what government wants to achieve in terms of promoting inclusion and diversity in these landscapes. And yet, they don't know how to go about it because there are a whole lot of barriers and a whole lot of issues. So much of my research is geared towards understanding what the issues are on the part of the communities I'm working in mm -hmm. or working with, and then also understanding what are the barriers that environmental organizations are facing in reaching out to these people, mm. you know, mm -hmm. in order yes. to, to engage with them yes. and to bring them on board. Yes, yeah, so it's basically going down into finer details of how you can implement so or become a bridge. Yeah, so yeah. You, could, you could have policies, but then mm. if the policies are not implemented mm. in a very effective way, it's not going to change. If policies don't change things, it's people who implement policies that can bring about the change. Yes. So much of my research is to look at how effective are policies in bringing about that that positive change that we are talking about. Right, and would you look at also what you can do to make them more practical and in its implementation of policies? Well, I can do that. All I can do is I can recommend, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, my research, mm. that due to, due to, due to my work in, in the grassroots, mm. you know, with people in the grassroots, people in this deprived community, yeah. this, this is, this is, these are some of the methodologies that you can use. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say we have to be careful of generic approaches to addressing these issues, mm. which have always been typical mm -hmm. of people implementing government policies because they say all ethnic minorities are the same. Mm -hmm. But it's, it doesn't, it's not, it's not mm, as quite, you quite diverse. Yes. You know? So it's me looking at how each ethnic group what really they are interested in when it comes to environment and how to, you know, do things that can engage them mm. than just to say, oh, you know, all of them are the same. You can't just generalize things because, you know, people are different and people mm -hmm. are unique mm. in, in, their, in, their, in their experience mm -hmm. of mm. life. Mm -hmm. And so m that's what informs, what, that's so much of my research is what we call ethnographic mm. research or ethnographic inquiry which is talking, looking at the lived experience of people and how that can inform practice, mm. you know. So it is, it is a challenge, but then it is um, it's something that if you want to bring about a change in policy or shift in policy, you have to do it. Let the people who policy or policy, the policy is meant for right. to be the people shaping that policy, but yes. not, you, not you, you know, forcing things on them. Yes. Let them shape the policy. Yes. And this ethnographic research, um, obviously you were saying earlier that it's a qualitative form of research. So it's hard to measure essentially of, you know, people's lived experiences are hard to measure, hard to interpret. Um, so it, 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 it's a challenge in terms yes. of how, how you will go about accessing. Yeah. And well, analyzing the data. Yeah, that's true because at the end of the day, you know, we have two types of 
research either you either is qualitative or quantitative and like i was telling you earlier on you you want to look at um ethnographic research is more qualitative mm. which basically it is the people that are writing their own research talking about things people who don't have voice mm. are speaking for themselves mm. whereas quantitative research which mostly mostly statistical research mm. you know is mostly very empirical uh which you know i you know i think doesn't really give ju- make justice to the people you want to help mm. to transform their lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's why i choose ethnographic research because i think it's empowering and also it's enabling yes you know and it's also something that can be sustainable because when people are involved in research the people who are research if they are involved in that research then it becomes sustainable because basically it becomes something that's embedded in their psyche where they think they're doing this for their own benefit mm-hmm. and not taking box to box ticking. Mm. So yes, that's, that's why... a good perspective. Yes, that's, yeah. that, that's, that's the way it is. So because if you are doing, if you're doing research with communities that have traditionally mm. not been involved, had had a say mm. in that research, mm-hmm then it is very disempowering, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm. and and that's what I'm not interested in. Mm. Um, because even though I'm an environmental journalist, I'm also an ecocentrist. Yes. Even, you know, that, um, you know, um, basically nature is who we are and what we are. And so whatever we do, we have to give, we have to remember, always remember that, you know, we are beings of nature. Yes. And, and so um, we have to have that in our psyche, you know, how we treat other people. Yes. We don't have to treat people less than ourselves or or above ourselves. Yes. All humanity is the same. It doesn't matter their racial background. Mm-hmm. People are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and ecocentrists, we believe that, you know, you know, man is just like um, it's just like when you look at nature to compile diversity, mm. being biologically diverse. You're so, a part of nature. So, so you talk yeah. of human diversity. That's the beauty. Yes. Of nature because we are all part of the whole ecosystem, the whole flora and fauna, really. Uh-huh, okay. You know, so it's a kind of web of life. Yes. You know, where each species has a role to play in the whole ecosystem mm. or the whole web of life. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. So mm-hmm. man, man have a role to play just like a fly, a bee, mm. or any other insect, mm-hmm. or any other flower mm-hmm. or plant. It's so it's a whole it's, a, it's 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 organic. It's such a beautiful way of looking at yeah. the world, yes. but also a strong principle of how you approach what you do in your daily life. Yeah. So as an ecocentric, for example, how how does that affect your day-to-day decisions that might be different from a norm not normal but you know what mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. from someone who isn't an ecocentric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean people people I mean that's people are very um, unique in their own way in life in terms of their maybe their lived experience or how they've been brought up and so and people some people perhaps because they haven't had that kind of exposure or experience continue to go on the same path that they've been brought up Mm -hmm. or the way they've been socialized Mm -hmm. but there are some people who change along the line because of the exposure they get Mm -hmm. you know the encounters they make in life and so it's it's, it varies from person to person so me you know i'm happy with being a naturalist or an ecocentrist because i think you know 
you know, nature is part of our happiness. If you take nature away, we have no happiness. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so you can imagine if you wake up one day and there's no nature around you, 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 you can imagine. Definitely. And, and there's so much yes. research that have proven that, you know, when people are ill, they recover faster when they're exposed to green spaces. That's right. You know, and that even when there are traffic jams, you know, in countryside, on countryside roads, there's no road rage because people spend their time, you know, admiring the countryside. Mm. Whereas in the city, you know, people get so wet up and angry. Mm. So it just goes to tell you how powerful nature is mm. in our whole well-being and happiness. Mm. So I'm, 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 more, I'm happy with that, but because we live in a capitalist, consumerist society, nature is always put second to economy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm. so everything people talk about is talk about economy, but they can't talk about economy without nature. Mm. Because there won't be economy without nature. Mm. So n economy is a subset of nature. Mm. And that is, that is what we have to always remember. That if we destroy the whole ecosystem, then we, we, can't, we can't get the resources that we need as human beings to live or to survive. Mm -hmm. And so much of the work I do is even though black and minority people you know, have migrated and now live here, they are British. And so they have that civic responsibility to contribute to the whole quality of the environment of, mm. of the UK mm. or, you know, so you have what we call environmental stewardship, where you have to have that active citizenship mm. mind that, mm. you know, the environment I live, mm. I have to look after that environment. It matters, yes. It matters you have, we have to contribute, yeah, contribute because we are a part of yeah, nature. Yeah. Not only yeah. even being part of nature, but basically where you live, if you don't look after the environment you live, the environment will not look after you. Mm. So say for example, if you if you walk on the road and you get to your home and you then take your shoes off and you step on your carpet, then obviously you're taking the, all the, the dog poo and all the mess that you've taken from the soles of your shoe on back into your carpet <laughs> and, and smell the carpet. Mm. And then you sit down your, in the room there, in your living room, and then you are smelling everything, you're breathing everything again. Mm. So you're indirectly destroying yourself. Mm. So we have what we call the human ecology mm -hmm. and the natural ecology. Mm -hmm. They have to be living symbiosis that have that kind of work on your destiny. Mm. Because basically what happens externally can affect you internally. Yes. And that's why when we talk of air pollution, mm. we found out that air pollution is linked to all kinds of diseases like, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, deformation, uh, child defects in the womb, mm. you know, uh, mental health problems now, such mm -hmm. a um, you know, evidence that, mm. you know, so obviously, you know, the particles we breathe in, whatever we, we take mm. affects our body. Mm -hmm. So, so the, so the natural ecology has an impact on the human ecology. Mm. And so we, if you think what you are doing, you don't care, mm. it will, it will come back and affect yes. you. Because if you think what you are doing, you, you, you because you don't care what you're doing. Mm. Don't think it's going to harm other people. It's you, it's going to yeah. harm. Because so long as it's harming someone, it's going to harm you as well. Yes. Because you coexist in the same environment. Yes. Anyway. So whatever you do, come back to, to, to have an impact on you. Yes. So yes. It's, 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 um, it's not rocket science. It's so straightforward. That when you break it down that, that way. That's, yeah, mm. that's nature. Is, you are part of nature. Mm. So whatever you do to nature, mm. it's going to have an impact on you. Mm -hmm. mm. And... I mean, in if you look at them um, in in indigenous indigenous cultures, they've always said that you know you can't 
you can't escape from nature if you think you are destroying nature you are indirectly destroying yourself and that's why in most indigenous cultures they look after nature because if you look after nature nature will look after you mm. mm-hmm. but in western society it's a diff- it's, it's the reverse it's a different world game they mm. think they can use the scientific scientific fix mm. for for all natural for all natural problems mm-hmm. but we've seen that it is it doesn't work because when the typhoons the cyclones and ever can happen you were it's, powerless it, you, you, it's, it's, you are powerless mm. and we've also seen that nature is no respect of persons it doesn't matter your race your creed your color your background your class your status nothing when when it happens mm. everyone will be affected yes so so we have a collective responsibility as a people mm-hmm. you know to protect the need to protect our natural environment for the benefit of not only as ourselves but for our children because if you look at the real conference in 92 Mm. It says sustainable development. The mm-hmm. meaning is means that sustainable development is a development that meets the needs of present generations mm. without compromising the ability to meet the needs of future generations. Mm. That is what sustainable development is about. Mm-hmm. So whatever we are doing now, we have to bear in mind about the other generations to come or the other generations at the moment, the children that are growing up now, mm-hmm. that if we destroy this the very environment, then we are then we are very we destroying the children mm-hmm. because you can't talk about loving your children and caring for your children if you are destroying the very environment that the children have to grow in yes happening. but i think it takes um you know i think for a lot of people i don't think that sort of filters through in our collective brains in terms of being able to see things that way until someone breaks it down for them if you understand what i mean because the disconnection has come so far that we do feel really disconnected from nature itself and we see that as a separate entity and yeah i mean i can empathize that it is hard to see it that way sometimes when because of that disconnection you know yeah of course yeah. i mean you're right there. i mean seeing nature as separate entities apart because people in western societies who who conserve natural species for leisure and recreation mm. see it as an as a, as a separate entity it's an asset as an asset to use to and use. yes whereas people it's quite a selfish thing really isn't it it is whereas <laughs> people in from indigenous communities who depend on nature for their source of livelihood mm. mm-hmm. preserve nature because they know that if we don't preserve it then mm. We have no life. Yes. We won't be in existence. Yes. So that's the two different philosophies here. Mm. In the West, mm. is conservation for mm. leisure and recreation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Yeah, uh, so I'm just beginning to so see that. Yeah, yeah. So they see it as something to for to enjoy mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So you look at natural nature in the UK, right? The natural industry. I think last year alone they said, the if 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 I'm right. I don't know whether I've got it here, but it said it was only about six point something billion okay. um, pounds. That was, uh, I think, it's got it here, which from from just from from natural acti- from from just uh, countryside activities, really. You know, um, yeah. So it says here that um, workers in English countryside spend around six point fourteen billion pounds a year, generating income in excess of two billion. Wow. Yeah. 
so you see how it is so it's more yes. or less like um a business so it is that's how it is it's so people just use this resource as for leisure and recreation and for enjoyment that kind of thing mm. so that is the that is the thinking in mm. the western world mm -hmm. whereas in the in the in the developing world mm -hmm. nature is seen as a source of livelihood mm. that people depend on and know that if they lose it mm. then they've lost their livelihood mm -hmm. and so they have to make sure they preserve it mm -hmm. and respect it mm -hmm. so that it can also sustain them mm -hmm. So you see, that's a different, it's a different way of thinking. That's right. And and so when you have minorities people coming here to the UK and living here, it's a different ball game. And it's a different interaction. And as a well, different I'm interaction sure. as well. Yes. yes. So so it's completely a completely different a different issue here. Mm. And that's why even though you know there's a lot of research done and emphasis in terms of promoting access to the countryside for minority groups, it's still a struggle. You know. Um, mm. this is this a struggle to get to get people to understand the relevance of these spaces mm. or these landscapes to them? Mm -hmm, mm. Okay, mm. so understanding this, so the cultural issues are there because of they are disconnected because of migration or history of migration or history of settlement. And then there also the economic reasons that I spoke about mm. because people haven't got jobs or people are doing more than one or two jobs they have to survive on mm -hmm. the day, so they can't they can if you don't have enough to eat or to pay your bills mm. why would you want to get and go work in the countryside mm -hmm. you know exactly saying? of course you know people you have, have got priorities people are, yeah you have space and time mm. you know mm -hmm. so time is important mm. money is important mm -hmm. you know all these things are very very important and then i spoke about the outdoor gear if you don't have it you know mm. it's you can't you won't able to go out walking there quite if you go and you you get beaten by the rain or you know you get mm. you know snow or that kind of mm. thing and you are not you feel cold and that kind of thing mm -hmm. then next time you don't want to go out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know so 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 it's easy said than done in terms of just getting it's not just people are not human beings are not like goods or sheep just to say go and drive them out into the countryside yeah to go and just no 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 mm. you know people have to be going out for a reason a purpose. Know, a purpose. I, I completely agree with you in that you respect, know. yes. Uh -huh. Something that really yeah. is making them enjoy. And and also um, getting value from it. Yes. Yeah, obviously. Of your time. Of your time. That, that you rarely have. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. that was so the already case. time is, is so valuable mm. to most minority people. Mm. So to if you know I'm going to go out walking in the countryside and there's no value in that walking, Mm. You wouldn't go, will you? You'd mm -hmm. rather use that time to go and do something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if people know the value they get from walking mm -hmm. in the countryside for their health and well-being reasons, then they will obviously will will change their uh, mindset. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing things that have no value or no distance, they will make time to go out and walk. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, so it's, it's yes. a challenge, but every peop everyone is different. Mm. Because most of the people we work with will tell you, oh, Black people don't walk, or people don't want to go walking, and that kind of thing. It's not, um, it's not something that we do. It's not in our culture yes. or that kind of thing. So it, this is the thinking. Yes. And that's how people. That's how they. And so you find out that, um, you know, they play black men walking, which was inspired by my walking group. You know. Um, yes, I wanted to ask you about that. Yes. Um. Though I was really interested to. Mm -hmm see if the play because of i missed mm -hmm. the play mm -hmm. and um 
was that based on any of the real characters and also were you involved in the creation of the play as well i wasn't what input i wasn't um we were approached by the lady who directed the play uh from Eclipse theater to say she said about our group and this is okay if she came and worked with us because she's interested in getting a playwright to write about you know the history of black people mm -hmm. in the british landscape mm -hmm. and so we said what well, that's fine mm. you know so she brought this guy testament who's a who's a playwright who came and worked with us and did a script um we didn't see the script that was written but we did grant interviews to the media about our working group mm. uh, but we didn't grant interviews about the play per se because we didn't know how much of the script i see even though the play was based on our working group so they came on the group yeah, oh, the on the walk. sorry yeah. he came on the walk yeah, with you right. and then yeah but yes. it wasn't it didn't really we weren't involved in writing up the script mm. but and the characters who came and act did the play um, were black characters, but they were based on the three of us who set up the working group. I see, yes. So you look at the play, characters were three. Yes. The lady in the play wasn't part of the the whole setup or in of the group. Right. It wasn't, but she just, and, and um, I've just been looking at the, the reviews, and they say the play challenges misconceptions about race and racism, mm -hmm. and there's no shying away from the abuse commonly in our black people in Britain from calls of where are you from mm. and go back to use of racial slurs and the discussion of the microaggressions black people live with black men walking. It tackles the subject head on making mostly white audience at the Royal Eastern Theatre more than a little uncomfortable. <laughs> okay? And and then it went on to say the critical difference for the, these three men is an awareness of their need to process their experience through what uh, you know, is described as double consciousness. That is J.B.W. Du Bois, who was one of several rights writers, being both British and black. This mm. brings a juxtaposition of cultural idioms, which is both humorous and challenging. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so it's just it's just about you know talking about the unwritten history of black people in the British landscape. That's yeah. what the play was all about. Yeah. Um, so, so, and it goes on to say, the play came at a time when issues of race and national identity are once again at the forefront of British cultural and political change. This new play enthusiastically delivers an important message about perceptions of race, identity, and how prejudice can ultimately be transcended by our shared humanity as experienced through common endeavor. I think that relates to what you were saying about right. ecocentrist. Yes, so mm -hmm. so basically that is that is um you know uh, that's what's about and obviously this again relates to what I was saying. Black men walking, it's an uh, astonishing piece of theatre. It's about meeting race, memory, friendship, being British and black, casual racism, loneliness and aging, and disconnection, mm. which is basically along to what I was talking about. Mm. Okay. So this is this is this is what the play is about. So the play is geographically precise, taking in the moors above Grindelwald, along an ancient Roman road, and the lush hollows of the 
Paddle Gorge, which is where... Was that one of the walks that yeah, you would go on? Yeah, that's where we did the walks. I yeah. see. That was how mm. it came about, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 so the play is something based on the past history of black people in the British landscape. And they, and they talk about, you know, Septimus Severus, who's a Roman Empire, who came from Africa, who made Yorkshire his northern capital, mm. doing more to advance the cultural, social, and technical process of Yorkshire than many other, than, than many before, even since. And so, and also talking about another guy called John Moore, it's a black mailer of the Middle Ages who commissioned many of the milestones at Stanley Edge and brought the keys to the city of York with his wealth. Mm. So all these histories are there, but people are mm, not aware not that mm. there have been black people in the British landscape mm. for centuries. Yes. Or, you know, and, yeah. you know, so seeing black men walking is novel or something new. It's not new. Yes. You know, it's black people have walked this landscape yes you know before yes but it's, it's not written yes and that's and that mm. is and that is a challenge and so much of it is about uh, politics that's what the play is trying to expose here mm. it's also talking about the fact that you know there's a history here that has been hidden or has not been written and there's the need to raise awareness about these things and to and to create or disbunk, to debunk really that whole, you know, issue of what are black people working and what are they doing, you know. And so some we have some other reviews saying the image of black men in Britain has been dictated by fear, fused by establishment, establishment stereotypes that have rewritten history in a way that demolishes and continually omits the long presence and contribution of black people in Britain. Mm. So the contribution of black people in Britain has not been given that credence mm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what this play is trying to, you know, to, to, to talk about, mm. you know, um, that it's just all about only maybe sometimes, you know, only the negative things that is spoken about. That's about right. Black people. Yes. So, so, so you say, and why black men walking also examines contemporary racism within Britain from a systematic police prejudice to unthinking microaggressions, this positivity and the variety of black experience is included in the whole script of the play. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's all about. Mm. It's about that there are positive things that have that people have done in this in this um, country mm. that have not have not come to light at all. Mm. So you find that you know some other reviews are saying that in the same week. That saw the arrival of Arenzi Kenny's Misty. I don't know if you've heard of that play or not. It's called the Arenzi Kenny's no. Misty. A play that passionately questions the cliche, the cliche of plays about black Britons. Gun crime, knife crime, and domestic abuse. Mm. Black men walking opens at the royal court, having already had a successful outing in Manchester. And this place about black men walking group in a triumphant vindication of Kane's point that most of the stories of black Britons have nothing to do with gangs or drugs. Mm. You know? They are about ordinary folk doing ordinary things like going for walks and talking about themselves and about whom and about what home means to them. Yes. So that's 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 how that's how that's how it is. Yeah. It's such a great idea for the play. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, so that's 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 what it's all about. Mm, mm-hmm, it's, mm. it's about you know the good thing about the play is we've got people who come to join on our walks, and people have inquired about our walks. 
that's basically that's what it's all about yes you know yeah i don't without a play i don't think you know people maybe would have because not everybody would go to who start googling about shuffling environmental movement or black men walking it's very rare but it is rare but yeah, because of the play, the play mm. when people watch or hear about it mm-hmm. then obviously they want to find out where does where did they originate from exactly and so they google about this exactly so that's 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 the only that's thing really good it's very good for your work as yeah. well yeah one of the final things i wanted to touch on mm-hmm. uh which we've frequently spoken about since we met is um the lack of uh, black and ethnic minority um students for example being engaged in environmentally related call courses or university call co- courses we we're talking about mm-hmm. um and uh and how how do you think we can overcome this challenge so you know a lot of the safe uh, i can speak for the asian culture um a lot of uh the our parents prioritize for example jobs like engineering doctors um and lawyers um and um you know that the that basically is prioritizing money over other aspects of the you know any other profession um so how 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 do you think we can tackle this <laughs> well it's, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult question because you know i think we live in a society where money comes first status comes first yeah, so those two things, money and status. Mm. So, you know, like the footballers, you know, the successful sportsmen, everybody wants to be like them. So obviously, people want to be engineers and doctors because they think that's a status symbol. Yes. So it's a status issue here, you know, and status comes with money. So where something that hasn't got status attached to it, hasn't got money attached to it, it's not attractive to our comi- black and minority communities because mm. they don't see that as something that, because, you know, in this country, it's status that's everything. And especially if you are black and ethnic, you're already put down there as a second class distant. So you will want to obtain a status, status that can put you at par mm. with with white people, mm-hmm. you, so it's a class mm-hmm. thing, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. how you change people's mindset mm. to think, to say that, look, status is not important, mm. it's your health and well-being, mm. and the joy you get from what you do, even no matter how little you're in, but if you are able to be happy with your life and that kind of thing, that is that is the key. Mm. you know to mm. to your health and well-being really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's difficult to convince people because obviously if you don't have a good job and you're not well paid mm. you know mm. you, it's, you, it's hard to survive in and this I system. think maybe it's one of those things where you can lead by example well you can lead by example but nobody wants to lead by example and go and sleep in an empty stomach you're <laughs> not able to pay to pay their uh, their mortgage or they are rent because you are renting. If you go and you can't pay <laughs> your landlady will not give you that. Of course not. Of course not. Out of the house, isn't it? But what so, I mean is, you know, like uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm earning enough, well, just comfortably yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, but you're enough because yes. you have the, the way your job you're doing, you're earning that. But some people don't earn enough like you. Yes. <laughs> so and 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 that is the challenge really. And if you don't have, we have to always remember that 
it's easy saying that I'm this, I'm doing this. Mm. It's different from another person. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you don't have the base, the support to do what you are doing, mm -hmm. you can't do it because if you don't have a place to sleep, you don't know how you're going to pay your next bill, mm -hmm. you won't be able to do what you want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yes. It's human. Yes. Obviously, we are all human. And when you're talking about mental health problems, again, here, if you lose your job, you can't get a job then it affects you, you can't take care of your family, mm. then obviously mm -hmm. it will affect you mentally. Mm -hmm. So people want to look for jobs that they can earn a good living, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. make a good living and save enough, mm. you know, to mm -hmm. do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so professions that they think there's nothing there, they can't get this thing. Mm. Because remember people in the type of professions that maybe me and you are, are already privileged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if yeah, you look at all those, yeah. if you look at some of those um, uh, extinction rebels, those mm. activists, mm -hmm. they mm. come from privileged backgrounds. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. so if they don't, they should have the they, they have the leisure, the, the luxury to go and demonstrate and do those things. Yes, but I don't have that luxury. I'm not saying that. Like for example, they asked me why don't you know black people go for this protest, and I said I won't go for the protest because if the police arrest me. Yes, and uh, I'll be treated differently by mm. a white person, mm -hmm. and and it's clear it's a mm. fact. Racism is there, and that's how the police behave. Mm -hmm. So, so the problem is, is how you can reorient people's mindset to understand that not all that glutes is gold, mm. and that money is not the end of this world. Mm -hmm. There are some professions that can give you happiness, can give you a good quality of life. Mm you know mm -hmm. and better than getting sacks of money and not having mm -hmm. good quality of mm -hmm. life or happiness mm -hmm. you understand? Mm -hmm. so it's by engaging these uh, folks in the community and explaining the relevance of getting their young their children to into in, into do certain courses that like environment landscape and those kind of things mm -hmm. and to have role models like yourself and me here mm -hmm. acting as mentors mm -hmm. or you know ambassadors or champions mm -hmm to go into schools, into universities, and talk about our journey to where we are, mm -hmm. okay? Mm. And by so doing, we can be uh, raising awareness and encouraging and inspiring other young people mm -hmm. to take up after us. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, like for example, you you know, most, most places when I go, so when, they, oh, when we talk about somebody coming to talk about environment or those things or those things a white person so yeah environment exactly. is associated with white mm. you understand what i'm saying yeah black people don't do environment but that's mm. not true mm. you understand what i'm saying mm. so it's it's just a question of how can you change people's mindset mm -hmm. that you know it's good that young people go in and do courses in the environment or in landscape architecture mm. it will lead them to you know, so, so, and, and and the thing is, people are not even aware of the jobs in the environmental sector. Mm -hmm. They are not aware of any in, in landscape mm. or architecture. Yes, I, w I think I would have also considered being an environmental journalist if I had ever come across the course at some point. Yes. Uh -huh. So <laughs> if people are not aware of what is what courses are out there, you know, and where they will lead them to, then they are not going to go in. And so our people are only aware of things like engineering, medicine nursing blah blah and that kind of thing they are not mm. aware of these niche courses niche fields mm. areas that we are talking about like landscape architecture mm. you know and environment mm. you know mm. but even when you talk environment you have environmental engineers mm -hmm. 
you know. Mm -hmm. So environment is quite broad, mm -hmm. but it's because of the way it's perceived in our communities as just the outdoors. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you get you get what I'm saying. Yes. When I talk about just things, nature out there, that's yeah. it. They don't they can relate it to, you know, other bigger, bigger, bigger um, mm. what they call jobs that out there that you know people are doing and earning literally you know thousands of pounds. Mm. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have someone to go and talk mm -hmm. and talk and raise awareness about what's out there, mm. and that person who's doing the talking is like themselves, mm -hmm. so they can relate to. Mm. And it's only somebody who's not like them. So they're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to go. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, if they visit these places, these institutions, environmental institutions, or landscape institutions, or organizations, then they don't see black people or minority people working there. Then they will not feel comfortable wanting to do anything because they think oh, already it's not a place that is welcoming. They don't want us there. Yes. So why would I want to go there? And then also, if you want to look at the level. Um, no, they, 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 yeah, what I mean by is the um, oppositions that black people or black and white minority occupy in some of the institutions that uh, fields that me and you are talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't occupy top positions, you don't see them. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, if people don't see people uh, like themselves in top positions in certain professions, right, they will not feel like they will, they will not feel comfortable going there because they will say, if we go there, we're not gonna be given opportunity to. To, mm -hmm. to grow or to develop mm -hmm. or to progress right and everybody wants to progress right. in life nobody wants to detrogress de so everybody wants to progress so uh, people are looking for opportunities that will make them progress into something better mm -hmm. people want them people are ambitious mm -hmm. and so you also have to understand why where minorities come from yes they want to progress yeah. they want to be ambitious they want to do things better for themselves mm. So it's and not, they it's have not every right to. Of course, yes, everybody has a right, right to. to. So mm. it's not the it's not their problem. Mm. So and the, but the problem also is how can you create awareness that you know about the opportunities in the environmental or landscape fields, and how do you get people to change from that culture mm. into something different in order to encourage and inspire black and white people go into those professions. That is that is a big question that I can't answer. Yes, it's you know, it's a big question. I thought I would just throw it out anyway. I can't answer, but I will attempt. That's I've just attempted that's to give you very, very to give good. you the different angles of the mm. issues that that you know I see. Mm. Um, having worked in this sector for you know a number of years now, because um, when I finished my masters, I lectured in the university. Mm. Um, I lectured master students on sustainable development and rural trends. And none of the students was from black and white minority background. They were all white, English white students. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I started working in the environmental field, I don't see black people who got qualifications in the environment. Right. I've ne I don't come across yes, them. You yes. may see activists. You may see people one or two who mm -hmm. are interested in the environment, but they haven't got my my type of my qualification. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm. Um, so when I talk of environmental journalists, people have not even heard about what what's an environmental journalist yes, and what do they do. Exactly. You know, and that kind of thing. Yes. So so it, it's very rare and also it's not your place as a black person or an eight minority person to be to have a qualification in the environment. We're supposed to be environment supposed to be for white people. Mm -hmm. This is another perception that, yes. that, that they have. Yes. Like in your case when you talk of landscape architecture, yes. you know, it must be a, a white white girl or maybe white woman you understand what i'm saying yes so that's the have that other perception as well mm -hmm. so mm. so so it's, it's challenging really mm. but you know people like me and you have 
come a long way to break the myth that people have. Because this is Chinese community here, when I go to talk to them, they're mm -hmm. not interested in the environment. You understand what I'm saying? But say, if you go with me and they see you, even though I don't know how Burmese and Chinese people get on, whether you've got that kind of racial... Uh, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> There's always uh -huh. racism so in every attention, culture. You know, yes, whether they will yes, take yes. to you or not. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. But that is it's just that the environment is not something that comes into the uh, into the uh, distant into the, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, area of consideration, you know, mm. it's, it's mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. IT, engineering, medicine, mm. business, mm -hmm. you know, and those kind of the Chinese, especially Chinese people's business. Business is huge, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's huge. Funnily enough, in our landscape architecture course, I mean, we usually have in a year um, about only th 30 people mm -hmm. in a year, so not much in consideration to obviously the wider population. Um, but we did have a lot of Chinese students coming. Yeah. It was like nearly yeah. about half a class. In this, in this, in the, you know, in most universities, mm. uh, Chinese. That's students, the same for uh, the in courses. In the, then. Of, in the University of Sheffield, some years ago, I did mm. um, I did a sandwich lecture for the School of Architecture mm -hmm. uh, and Planning, mm -hmm. and right. most of the students with Chinese students. Yes. Because they need they need a qualification to go back home. Uh, and use it doesn't it to have to be uh, yeah. Uh, you understand? Yes, but not yes. those students you are talking about they are not home Chinese students here. They're not from the UK. Mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. mostly from uh, from yeah, from abroad. I understand what you mean now. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so that's how yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. I think you've given us so much food for thought, um, including me as well. Where can people reach you if they wanted to contact you? Well, I think, you know, we've got our website, mm -hmm. which is www.semcharity.org.uk. Mm -hmm. That's S-E-M. S-E-M, charity, mm -hmm. all one word, .org.uk, where people can, you know, log in and see the work we've been doing. So if your podcast can be circulated widely mm -hmm. to networks that mm -hmm. are not aware of our existence and what we do, mm -hmm. That would be fine. That's mm -hmm. one way. The other way is getting it into government circles mm -hmm. because I think government circles are interested in finding out, you know, case studies of good practice taking place all over the UK that people are not, not aware of. Mm -hmm. So if you can get it there mm -hmm. for, for them to see the issues I've, I've just, um, you know, just been talking about. Mm -hmm. And then that's another that's another uh, you know outlet mm -hmm. so and then also if you can get it to the universities mm -hmm. and maybe schools if definitely the then, then that's another outlet because i think definitely. from what we spoke we've explored a to z isn't it so that's we look right. at what in a more holistic way mm. um we've seen the issues you know and the barriers you know um we've, we've, we, we don't have answers to all of them but we due to the experience I have and you also have in terms of working with people in the grassroots, which obviously is to do with both theory and practice, mm. you know, can help bring about the social transformation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because these are professions that me and you are in that are quite niche, that you don't have people like me and you in those professions. So if there's a way that me and you can be champions in terms of, you know, uh, inspiring or promoting these professions, mm. then I think that would be that would be that would be the best way forward. Mm -hmm.
so that was the end of the episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and were able to get some new insights from it. Please do share your biggest learnings of the episode via either on email at thepinpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at thepinpodcast. My favorite quote by Maxwell from the conversation is Policies don't change things. It is the people that implement these policies that can bring about the change. Which is a big reminder of why Maxwell's work to connect different groups and communities is so important because it brings about the empowerment and not only that but the momentum towards making changes in society. So until next time, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on our next episode. And please give this podcast a rating and review to show your support.